Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, we are back together for the 22nd uh, part in this series on the Ulum al Quran. Days are going very fast. We've entered, uh, in, we're entering into the last 10 days of Ramadan. We've entered into the last 10 days of Ramadan. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increase the barakah. Let us begin this with a reading uh, of the Quran. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وإذا مس الإنسان ضر دعا ربه منيبا إليه ثم إذا خوله نعمة منه نسي ما كان يدعو إليه نسي ما كان يدعو إليه من قبل وجعل لله أندادا ليضل عن سبيله قل تمتع بكفرك قليلا إنك من, أص... إنك من أصحاب النار أمن هو قانت آناء الليل ساجدا وقائما يحذر الآخرة ويرجو رحمة ربه قل هل يستوي الذين يعلمون والذين لا يعلمون إنما يتذكر أولو الألباب صدق الله العظيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على المبعوث رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد. Today the discussion is regarding the رسم القرآن الكريم. رسم القرآن الكريم meaning the specific unique script from Uthman رضي الله عنه time that the Quran has been written for over fourteen hundred years and it hasn't changed. We want to discuss that, what's so special about it and um, what, what are the rules regarding it and a few additional points, some historical aspects. And, uh, you know, I particularly found, uh, found researching this quite interesting today. Firstly, when we say rasm, rasm, it means script. So it's the way the letters and the wording has been written. And... I've checked quite a few of the early Kufic uh, writings and it's really interesting the way the alif is written and the way uh, it's written without dots or anything. And I think uh, one of the wisdoms of why the original Qurans were written without dots even, you know, forget the fatha kasra and the voweling, but even without dots is because according to one opinion, it is to force people to make sure that you study with a teacher. So that you just don't take it yourself and start reading and start reading it all wrong. So the, it, was, it was to accommodate all of those uh, variant readings plus to force people to study with a teacher and then you could master it that, that way. So that, that's a really interesting idea. But anyway, uh, this is what Uthman had the, four, the, the, the committee of four main people that were there to inscribe all the Qurans and put them together. That's what he did. And then he had those six, seven, eight copies um, go out. So that particular copy, and then he encouraged people to copy it from there. He, he encouraged people to make additional copies, private copies of their own, you know, from these master copies, because now these master copies were the ones that included exactly what they wanted to do. And all the Sahaba at that time had agreed with it as well. That is what you call Rasmul Mus'haf or Marsum al-Khat, or Rasmul Mus'haf al-Uthmani. So this is the Uthmanic script, you call it, right? This is the Uthmanic script, um, not the Ottoman script. <laughs> That's a different idea of the Ottomans are different. But this is the, the original Uthmani script that it's been written on. Now, this particular way of writing, there's a long history uh, of Arabic writing that, uh, and uh, paleography and uh, uh, all of these other sciences that are related to that, which we are not going to go into today. But they say that this particular style of writing must have been taken from, and must have been the same as those scribes who were called by the Prophet ﷺ to write the Qur'an when it was being revealed. So this particular, these six, seven, eight master copies that were made to send to different cities by Uthman anhu were obviously taken from there. Some of the same scribes were used, like uh, Zayd ibn Thabit anhu. 
So that's why it's a very, very important one. And that was a very significant way of writing the Quran at that time. It was probably the common way of writing the Quran at the time for the most part, except that there were some specifics that were included in here. Uthman radiallahu anhu to express certain ideas. We're going to go into that a bit more. We're going to look at that inshallah today. That is why the agreed upon, uh, the, the, the majority, the majority have said that you cannot change this script today. And I've been saying that to you, you know, in some of the previous lessons as well, that if you want to write a new Quran, that is how you're going to have to write it is, in, is going to be in the same way. So for example, a simple example is if you open the Quran, you look at the word ulaika, right? Do you know how the word ulaika is written? It's written with a wow, right? But that wow is silent. Now there's a reason why that wow is included and there's lots of discussion. There's actually books written on this subject as to why the Quranic script includes certain letters like that that are not recited. You know, what's the purpose of it? Is it to accommodate another qira'ah? Is it to lay emphasis to a certain word? Is it to, you can say, elongate the word? Like in some cases, um, you've actually got the word bi'aydin but written with two ya's, for example, right? Uh, why two years even though one is silent? So some say it's to actually magnify the idea, it's to emphasize the idea, it's to delay the reading, it's not to delay the reading of the word, but to, you can say, stretch the reading of the word, that in tone you stretch it here. And there's lots of stuff like that that's mentioned, uh, which is a subject, ma'rifatul uh, rusum, and the asrar of the rasm meaning the secrets of the rasam, that's another topic on its own. I'm just going to allude to it today and I'll give you maybe a few examples, right? For example, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. In Arabic, according to modern uh, writing standards, uh, the Qiyasi way or the logical way of writing that would have been with a Ba and then an Alif because the word is Ism and then the Ba is with or in. So with the name of Allah should have been Bi Ismi. But they've taken out the alif, and generally most people say it's because this is so commonly and frequently read, read together, always read together. You, nobody, else, no, nobody ever says, Bi'ismi Rahmanir Rahim. Right? Nobody reads that, right? Bi'ismi Rahman. You say, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Nobody says, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Because that's not the proper way of reading it. However, the proper way of writing it is with an alif, because the original word is supposed to have an alif there. So, or Hamza, or whatever, you know, however you want to call that, that line. Now, they've connected it together. So most tafsirs will just say, many tafsirs will just say, oh, because of kathratul isti'mal or frequency of usage or whatever. But then there's other reasons also that I've provided, which you can read up in, in the more deeper books on this subject. So, uh, just to give you an idea of what the scholars of the early, uh, uh, early times thought about whether you can script the Quran in another style or not. So, as I said, the majority, overwhelming majority say that um, you cannot use any kind of modern uh, alteration or modern uh, adaptation or a change. It must be in the same way. And the reason is that uh, they, uh, many actually claim that the writing style is from uh, those who wrote the wahi, though wrote the revelation, the scribes, which was originally governed and dictated by the Prophet ﷺ and approved by him, which makes it tawqifi. Tawqifi means which makes it contingent on revelation in the sense that this is something which is, you can say, divinely inspired almost, right? That would be the idea that this would be divinely inspired. So you cannot change this. It is fixed forever. Even if language con conventions completely change, that would still still be allowed. Anyway, let's read the different, I mean, before I uh, explore any other ideas, let us understand who's saying this. Imam Ahmad, he said this, he said, It is haram, it is, in, it is unlawful to oppose the writing script or style of the mushaf of Uthman in even a ya or a waw or a alif or anything else. Can't even change, you know, a small letter, right? I mean, we're not obviously it's haram to change it in terms of um, what do you call it, changing its meaning, because that's obviously everybody would agree to that. Everybody would agree to that. This is you can't even you know say the same thing, but just update it to a modern way of writing or a new way of writing. No, Imam Malik rahimahullah was asked, can the masahif now be written according to the new conventions of how people write? He said, la. إِلَّا عَلَى الْكَتْبَةِ الْأُولَى No, 
it has to be read, written according to the original script, original style. Imam Abu Amr al-Dani, Wala mukhalifa lahu min ulama ilumma. He says that there's, a, a, well, that's what his observation was, that there's nobody to oppose this idea from the Ummah, at least maybe for his time. And initially that was the case. Um, that was the case. There has been some who have another opinion afterwards. They've, all sides have got their views and so on. I've given you some of their evidences as well. Right, I'll just mention to you the, uh, the people who are on the other side, those who consider that it's uh, okay to change, uh, some of those of you. This is mainly Abu Bakr al-Ibn al-Baqillani, who is a great scholar of the Qur'an, and we've heard his name before in regards to some other aspects of the Qur'an as well, the Sab'at Ahruf uh, and so on. So his opinion, and likewise Ibn Khaldun's opinion, is also this is not something that was divinely inspired. It was just the convention of the time that everybody agreed upon. And yes, the Sahaba all agreeing to Uthman writing that was just the fact that they agreed that he'd done a wonderful job and it was written according to the convention of the time. But language writing changes according to conventions of time. And that's why it doesn't have to rigidly remain in that way. And it can change. That was their opinion. They've got a number of evidences to that. As I said, it's not the strongest opinion, but uh, that is what they say. Then actually, there's even a third and a fourth opinion. All right. Now, the third opinion is very interesting. Remember, these are all minority opinions. And the first one is the strongest opinion. That is what has been practiced all the way through, right, for the most part. That's why today you will hardly ever come across. I've not come across any Mus'haf with the script different to that which was in the time of Uthman. There is a, a view by... Imam uh, Izzuddin ibn Abdis Salam, right, which is really interesting. I mean, he's such a great scholar. He's such a great scholar. He had a very interesting take on it. He says, you should not write it in the original style. You should actually write it in the modern style. Uh, and that would be, and he's got a reason for that. He's saying bec uh, because uh, if you write it in the original style, now remember the original style, when you say the original style, we only have maintained the skeletal style of that, which means the outline of the letters without the vowels and without the dots, because that style did not have dots and vowels in it. We've obviously added that, but onto the same skeletal style, the same wording that Uthman had written, right? And I compared some of that today, right? You know, with some of the pictures I have of the Quran from Tashkent and other places, right? But... Um, he was saying that, no, you can actually change the way that, for example, zakat and salat is written and you should change it. You should not keep it according to it. He, he seems to be quite forthcoming in that. And his reasoning is that if you keep it in that original way, people are going to make mistakes because they may not read it correctly. That's why you may as well give it to them in a way that they can read it correctly. Right. Now, the th fourth opinion is kind of a hybrid. They say that, look, um, it's better to keep it that way. Uh, in the original style, they're saying that those who understand that original style, uh, who are specific people who can understand it and so on, then it's better for them to continue to read that. So they give emphasis to that original Uthmanic script. However, they're saying that those who don't understand the ways of reading and so on, then those, they can use a modern style. So they've got a bit of a hybrid approach. But essentially, these are just a few people. These are a small group of people. They're not the majority. There are some more recent scholars as well who are saying it should be okay. Some have, re like for example, Sheikh Nuruddin Itar, he, he has said that you should maintain the original style. But if it's for training like children or something like that, uh, for just teaching them how to initially get to reading, then maybe you can change the style. So there is that minority view that does exist down there. However, the majority are saying that you should not change it at all. And that's why uh, what's really interesting is that it's a miracle, right? It's a miracle that despite all of these Qurans being copied, and there were so many, I mean, these were the six, seven or eight official copies sent by Uthman radiallahu anhu. Then there were others, uh, Hajjaj uh, and a number of other sultans and khalifs of the past, right? They had... Uh, new copies made and sent to different parts, you know, because it was a matter of honor to do it. I mean, it cost a lot of money to do this, you know, rather a lot of effort to do this. And they sent it to the different towns and cities and so on. And it's a miracle that until today we've got the same kind of skeletal script and it, that has not gone through a change. Yes, we've added dots and we've added all of these other things and um, and so on, but it has not gone through a change. That's a miracle of the Quran that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has even preserved the very script 
from over 1400 years ago. Now, what are the differences that the this uh, what are the differences to the you can say the kind of now more conventional way of writing, right? Uh, is found in the Uthmanic scripts. What is it? So, um, I, just to give you a quick idea, I mean, there's hundreds of examples, but to give you a quick idea, there are comes down to a few points okay it comes down to a few points which are the following um, one of them is certain letters becoming um, omitted though they're recited in the Quran right for example ya adamu ya adamu should be written as a ya alif for ya and then alif dalmim or hamza dalmim for adam now what's happened instead is the ya, that one alif has been taken out, and it just ya alif or hamza dal mim, which means you have to put a standing fatha on the ya to read it as ya adamu, and a has a a on it to be become part of adam. Similarly, in some places, ya ayyuhannas, instead of ya, ya alif, and then ayyuhannas with another hamza, it's actually written with just one, and there's a standing fatha on the ya, right? So that one alif has been omitted. Uh, likewise, in the word ha antum anjainakum anjainakum, there's no alif after the noon to stretch it. You rather put a standing fatah on there. Thereafter, that the word ar rahman, pretty much most of the time when you see a rahman written in the Quran, you're not going to see it written as. In fact, I don't even write my name. Well, it's not my name; it's Allah's name, right? But my name is Abdul Rahman. When I write it, I write it as ar rahman. Right, which essentially means alif lam ra ha. That's rah meme noon. I should actually write a meme alif to stretch the meme man. Right, but no, I uh, I put a standing fatah instead on it. So there's many words like that. Subhana is generally spent without the alif in the Quran as well, like Subhana Rabbi. Right. There's many words like that. There's many words like that. Um, then there are where the wow would be removed. Um, I, Subhanallah, there's so many of this. Baghin adin should have been baghiyun adiyun, where the ya has been removed. Then there's other. So th this is the first category where letters have been removed, but they're still read. And that is, I mean, does anybody read Rahman as Rahman? Right? I mean, because we have the standing fatah, they've accommodated for that for people who came later who couldn't understand how to work this out from the original skeletal wording. They figured it out and we add standing fatah to it. So that's why we read Rahman as Rahman. Then after that, there's another aspect which is they add words which are silent. They add letters rather which are silent. Like in Ula'ika, the wow is added. Right? Nobody reads it as Ula'ika right? or Uwala'ika. It's just Ula'ika, the wow is silent. Likewise, in Banu Israel, they've added an alif after the Banu, right? Except in certain places. Likewise, innahum mulaqu rabbihim. There's a, an alif added after the wow of mulaqu, which is silent, right? Some say that that um, could refer to it being a plural. That's an indication that this is a plural wow. That's why. Uh, ulul albab, ulul albab. That's really interesting because in there you've got an extra wow. It's written as alif, wow, lam, wow, alif. Ulu, uh. That's how you would say it if you didn't know. So that that first wow is silent. So that's what, and the alif is silent. So it's ulul albab. Just a few examples. Then there's the hamza. There's lots of changes with the hamza. Sometimes they add it, sometimes they take it out. Uh, then there's changes like for example where where should have been an alif they add a wow instead the the typical example of that is salat salat should be written as what sad lam alif ta instead of alif they've added a wow sad lam wow but no but that wow is silent instead we put a standing fatah on there we read as salat and um, likewise we read zakat in the same kind of way okay there, after that, you've got uh, some places where they, where they put a ya instead. For example, ya hasrata. 
So that should have been ta alif at the end to stretch the ta, but it's the ta is there, but then it has a ya after it, and you put a standing fatha instead. Likewise, another ya asafa ala Yusuf asafa should have been an alif at the end. They have a small alif which we've added later, but the skeletal style actually has a ya there, which is silent. And right, another one is some places two words are connected and written in one um, uh, connected style while others they're separated for example an la ta'budu illa allah an la ta'budu that you do not an la in many cases it's written separately as an alif noon and then la as a, uh, with a space in between right in other cases it's actually written together uh, with uh, no space in between. Likewise, Amma, Amma Nuhu Anhu. So Amma is written as An Ma because that's the original letters, that's the original words. Al Ainun and then separately Ma Nuhu Anhu. But no, it's written as Amma. Like uh, Amma Yatasa'alun. You know the surah, check how that's written. Amma Yatasa'alun. It's written, written as a Ain Meem with a fatha, right? Amma. Um, instead of an ma yatasa'alun, about what are they asking a question? So th these were all, uh, likewise, the word kullama. Uh, kullama is written all together in some places, and in one place it's written separately. So there's only one place in the Quran where it's written separately. Scholars have gone through all of this. You can check this in the Itqan of Suyuti. Uh, Manahil Irfan of Zarakshi has gone through pretty much all of them of exactly where it's supposed to be what. Now those who say that this is uh, this was just a convention of the time, whatever, then if uh, one of the evidence, this is actually one of the evidences used by those who say that it's uh, divinely inspired because if it was not divinely inspired, then it would be uniform throughout. But whereas Amma in some cases is written together, whereas in other cases written separately. So why is it written together in some places and separate in other places? Likewise, all the other examples, then, the, the, uh, you know, while they're written mostly like that, but in some cases they're written separately. So what's the reason for that? Not in all of them, but in some of them. So they're saying that it's divinely inspired. That's why it's written like that, because there's a certain other secret in there, a certain other significance in there. The other group who say, no, it's conventional, it's okay. They're saying that, oh, that actually proves, they're using that same evidence to say that it actually proves that this was not... Uh, divinely inspired. This was just because there were different scribes who wrote these, right? The different parts. So they just wrote them differently. That's what they say. The meaning is the same though, right? The meaning is the same. It doesn't change the meaning. It's just the way it's written. Now, in English, I would, I would give you a few examples of this. I think uh, in English, while you've got the word um, A-W-R-Y, Right? I don't know how most people would probably pronounce that wrong. That things have gone A-W-R-Y. Right? It's actually pronounced Arai. Now, if you go to Malaysia, right? Uh, in this country, we write postcode as P-O-S-T and C-O-D-E. Postcode. If you go to Malaysia, I'm not joking, official spelling is postcode. P-O-S-C-O-D. If you've got any Malaysians listening, they'll be able to clarify this. Postcode. Postcode, right? Now, if you go to Barbados, they don't say speedboat. They say speedboat, speedboat. But they still write it as speedboat, like boat, B-O-A-T, right? Otherwise, it should have probably been written as B-O-W-T, right? You can see what's going on here. This is the kind of issues we're having that why did they specify a specific style? Can we change that? Now, let's say today people in English are saying, you know, there's a lot of words here where we have these silent letters like, uh, come on, man, there's knife. those. Huh? Knife. Knife. Why do you have to write a K at the beginning of it? Why can't you just write it as N knife? N I Y F. Knife. Right? And why can't that be read as Neef? Right? You can see it's in English as well. There's this, and, you know, things have changed. Um, shop used to be spelt as S-H-O-P-P-E before, 
Shopee. And that's why when we, uh, it was the old Shopee, there was one in Ramsbottom, right up in Lancashire. And we used to uh, say Shopee, you know, we used to, because that's how it was spelt. But it's just the old way of, and the new way of spelling things that change. Whereas, you know, obviously normal, can, normal Arabic is not written the way the Quran is written, you know, today. You have some other examples for me? Yeah. Ni. Ni. Say all of these ones with the K in the between. Ni. You know, why does the K have to be continued to write there? It's a sign and letter. So don't think this is particular to Arabic, right? But anyway, what the first group is saying that all of this is divinely inspired. It needs to be like that because there's a certain benefit in that. There's a certain reason in that. I've not looked into why Ni is spelt or why knife is spelt with a K in the beginning. I'm not sure. Was it knife before? Was it Kni before? Right, you know, from another subject uh, language, and that's why it became like that. It's just morphed and evolved into what it is right now. I don't know, but in Arabic, the words have been straightforward like that. The way it is, Arabic is a very exacting science. Its script is very exacting, actually, and it's one of the shortest languages to write, right? Because the vowels are just uh, letter, uh, the vowels are just signs. Whereas in English, a vowel a e i o u takes a whole letter. To write cat, you have to write a c, a big a, and then a t. Right, so that's cat. The a takes as much space as a c and a t. Whereas in Arabic, the qittun just two two words, qittun qaf ta, and you just add a kasra there. Right, it, it it just takes less space. So Arabic, you can get a lot more Arabic in a shorter amount of space than you can, for example, English or Francais or uh, German or or whatever the case is. Right. So now that gives you a better idea of what's going on. So now some other interesting points if the original writing of Uthman radiallahu anhu was a skeletal form of writing okay which I tried to demonstrate to you today let me I don't know if it came out properly but let me see if we can um, show you a better picture today of it where I tried to read some of this today and it's mashallah it's a bit of a challenge to read so this is the original Kufic script. I don't know. Is that appearing? Uh, let's go a bit closer. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Can you see it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. Can you see how the alifs and so on are written on there? All right. It's, you know, it's very difficult to read. I mean, I can't read that unless I eventually find a word that makes sense. Uh, for example, there was one here that I figured out. Uh, because I figured out it says خَلَقَ السَّمَا وَهَتِي وَالْأَرْضِ and it's really interesting the way it's written but anyway, that was the way it was written who started adding these dots and so on? who started adding the dots and the vowels and so on? there was obviously a need because you know, it was difficult for everybody to go and learn it by a teacher and that just, uh, you, you could say, just caused issues Sometimes, and the scholars later thought that it was fine to add the dots. There was obviously a difference of opinion at the beginning about that, but now it's become accepted by all to add dots. I don't know if anybody is there today who still claims that, no, there should be no dots in the Quran, right? It should be st still according to that. Who was the first person to add the dots? So he's saying that this actually happened quite early. Um, Imam Mubarrad says, Imam Mubarrad is one of the um, uh, very famous grammarians. He, he, his report says that, the first person to do it was none other than a famous student of Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu, who was actually also considered to be one of those who devised the grammar laws, right? Uh, the grammar laws of Arabic, whose name was Abu Aswad al-Du'ali. Abu Aswad al-Du'ali is an amazing individual, right? He's a tabi'i and uh, he was actually a muhadrami, right? Meaning that he was, uh, as far as I remember, he was actually supposed to be a Muslim already during the Prophet's life, but he never met him. So anyway, he's a famous student of Ali radiallahu anhu, big scholar, major scholar, and that's his title, Abu Aswad al-Du'ali or Didi from that tribe. However, his real name, his actual name was Zalim ibn Amr. Zalim ibn Amr was actually his name, which is a really interesting name for those who understand the meaning of Zalim. Zalim ibn Amr was his name, but his, his title goes by Abu Aswad al-Du'ali. Others mentioned that actually, no, the first person to start adding the dots was the famous uh, Tabi'i Ibn Sirin, the dream interpreter, right? He, well, not that he did it for the public, but he had a Mus'haf, which was probably, you know, inherited and uh, seen by everybody else later, a personal Mus'haf in which he'd actually added the dots himself, okay? Uh, and he, the dots were actually added for him by Yahya ibn Ya'mar, 
not himself. He got somebody else to do it. Jahid, another great literature scholar of Arabic of the early times, he says in his Kitab al-Amsar, the book of cities, that Nasr ibn Asim was the first person to do this. Now, it looks like maybe people did this in different areas because, I mean, it was difficult to read. So they thought, let me make it easy, maybe for my children or for my family or for my students. So they decided to add the dots. So here, this is a ta and not a tha. This is a ba. This is a jim and not a ha. Right? So don't read them all like ha's because today we'd probably think they're all ha or they're all, well, the ba, ta and tha. There is no letter like a ba, ta and tha, you know, that goes like that without a dot in it, without dots in it. But yeah, that's how it was. So it looks like numerous people probably did it. And then eventually it became the convention. That's why it's very difficult to trace who did it first. Now, uh, a bit of other history on this, right, is Hajjaj had a real interest in the Quran. Now, you may have read about Hajjaj and his tirades and how many Sahaba, the thousands of individuals he killed, among which a huge group of Sahaba as well that he killed. I mean, he was a tyrant. Anybody who went against him, he was actually working on as a governor of the Umayyads, uh, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, and uh, he, he caused a lot of problem at that time. But he had a very special interest in the Quran. So let me tell you a few things that he did, just so you understand right, how, how they did things. Um, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, while he had this iron-fisted rule and you know, people have considered to him, him to be one of the greatest oppressors of our history and so on. I mean, you guys have heard his history, right? He ironically, right, also has a major role to play in serving the Quran, right? Um, now, firstly, Uthman, uh, just like Uthman alone had Qurans produced, those main Qurans and sent to the different cities, Hajjaj also distributed copies of the Quran to various cities. Not a different one, the same one, right? But with his, like, you know, that I've done this, right? So his copies. That's why Ubaidullah ibn Abdullah ibn Utbah states that the Mus'haf of Medina, the one, the official copy in Medina Munawwara, was originally kept in the Prophet's mosque and read from it every morning. That was the original copy of Medina Munawwara. But in the civil, uh, so... In the civil strife surrounding Uthman radiallahu's assassination, someone absconded with it. Somebody took off with it, right? Muhriz ibn Thabit reports from his father, who was among Hajjaj's guards, that Hajjaj commissioned several mushafs and sent one of them to Medina Munawwara. Now Uthman radiallahu's family, remember they had a personal copy, right, of Uthman radiallahu that he was actually martyred while he was reading and there's a blood stain on there, right? There's supposed to be a blood stain on there apparently. Uthman radiallahu's family actually found this distasteful that Hajjaj was actually sending a copy there later. This was much later, obviously, right? But when they were asked to bring forth the original, that it may be then recited from so they could replace the, the, the Medinan one and they could give the personal copy, they obviously didn't agree to do that. And in fact, some of them said that it had been destroyed on the day of Uthman radiallahu's assassination. Allah knows best, right? That's what the report says. Muhriz was informed that Uthman's master copy still survived in the possession of his grandson, Khalid ibn Amr ibn Uthman. However, we can assume that the Mus'haf that Hajjaj sent was adopted for public recitation in the Prophet Masjid in lieu of the original. Right? That's why Ibn Zabala says, Al-Hajjaj sent the Quran to major cities including a large one to Medina and was the first to dispatch the Mus'haf to towns. He wanted to get the Quran out there for people to read. Ibn Shabba says, when the Abbasid ruler Al-Mahdi became Khalif, he sent another Mus'haf to Medina Munawwara, which it is being read from even now. So this is in Ibn Shabba's time, that the one in Medina Munawwara was the one sent by Mahdi, not the original, which one which disappeared somewhere. Right? The Mus'haf al-Hajjaj was removed in place. So Mahdi was an Abbasid. Right, which who basically took over from the Umayyads. Now remember, Hajjaj is with the Umayyads. So what they did when the Abbasids came in Mahdi, he put his Mus'haf there, and it, uh, and Hajjaj's one that was removed and kept in a box next to the pulpit at least. So lots of this kind of changes and things like that took uh, part in history. Now there's another thing I want to mention. This you guys will find this interesting. 
Al-Hajjaj's role as regards to the Quran was just not confined to commissioning further Mus'hafs. He didn't just get some additional Mus'hafs created. Abu Muhammad al-Himmani reports that Hajjaj once called for a gathering of the Hufaz and for those who recited the book professionally, so the proper Qadis and for those who are Hafiz of the Quran. He also took a seat among them because he was from the former group, which is he was a Hafiz of the Quran. Okay, He was a Hafiz of the Quran and then he started he started this whole committee. Do you know what to do, to do what? He then asked them to count the number of the characters in the Quran. Every single letter of the Quran, count it. I want to know how many letters are in the Quran. Once finished, they unanimously agreed on the round figure of 340,750 characters. There are 340,750 characters in the Quran. I'm assuming character here probably means words or letters. I'm not sure. 340,750 characters. Characters are supposed to be letters, right? His curiosity became far from expended. After that, he then sought to discover at which character lay half the Quran. Now, I want you to take that number and divide 340,750 by 2. And wherever that comes, that's going to be the middle word of the Quran. And do you know what that middle word of the Quran is? Most of you will know this. What is it? Exactly. It is in Surah 18, verse 19, at the character Fa in Waliyatalattaf. That's Surah Al-Kahf. Waliyatalattaf. That's actually where it is. Then he asked where each one-seventh was in the Quran. You know, so that it'll facilitate for those people who wanted to finish the Quran in seven days. So count for me according to... Not how many pages it's written on, but the exact letters tell me exactly where each seventh ends. Now, I could read all of this for you, but you can find this in, in, in the book. I'm not going to mention all of this. So, his next aim was to uncover the location of each third in the Quran and fourth in the Quran. I don't know if he did it or not, but that was his intention. Himani mentions that Hajjaj would follow up the progress of the committee every night. He used to check what's going on every night. The entire under undertaking required four months. Now, the author of this book, Sheikh Mustafa Al-Azami, he says that he tried to verify this counting of these characters. So he said that he used a plain text copy of the Quran, digital, plain text copy of the Quran, without diacritical, uh, diacritical marks. And there was a small software that he used. And the count that he received was... 332,795. 7,000 characters different rather. Now, you might think that's a big difference. Actually, it's insignificant difference. The reason is, he says, number one, you have to have a methodology of what you're going to count as a letter, right? Are you going to count wherever a, a word has a shadda, like um, sabba? In the Quran, it's just written as sad and a ba. The ba has a shadda on top, which, represent, which represents the idea that this has two letters there. Are you going to count that as two letters? Or that word is just two letters? Or are you going to count it as three letters? Because it originally is three letters. Sabba is sab and then ba. Sad, ba, ba. So what was Hajjaj's methodology? What about the initial alif that is read but not written? Or uh, written but not read? Did he count those? What was his procedure? What was his methodology? So there's going to be a difference in that, right? That's why it's very, very similar given that we don't know exactly whether he counted the alifs or not or whether he counted the double letters or not as two letters or one letter. It's actually very, very close. Now, uh, there's another thing that I want to mention, how the Quran spread further into the public. I mean, you, you know, we've spoken about these official copies, right, that were uh, inscribed, uh, you know, that were commissioned by the rulers and the governors and things like that, starting from Uthman radiallahu an. Now what happened is that if you or I wanted a Quran to be written for myself, right? How would you do it? There was no printing press. There were no shops selling the Quran. In fact, it was prohibited in the beginning to take any payment, to have any kind of money transfer with regards to the Quran. So 
the way they would do it is you would bring the parchment, right? You would bring the paper, right? You would bring the paper to the member of the masjid, right? In front of the masjid, maybe after salat or something. And you say, is there anyone who's a scribe here who can write? Because I don't know how many people knew how to write eventually. It must have increased. But is there somebody who can write? Because, I mean, writing the Quran is something, uh, even if you can write today, I mean, writing the Quran, you know, you want it right in this, you want it to be written nicely so that you can keep it forever, right? So, you know, I may be able to write English, but my writing, handwriting isn't that great, so I'll probably get somebody else to do it. So, the idea is that you would stand in the front with some papers and you'd say that, can you help? So then somebody like Salim would come and say that, here, you know, I'll write it for you. And then this would be done over the course of many, many days. Different scribes would volunteer. This was all voluntary in the beginning. Right, so over several days or weeks or whatever, different, you know, based on their time, the different people would come and they would inscribe it for you and you'd thank them, right? You may maybe even give them a gift or something. However, as Islam spread, the demand grew, okay? And that's when um, they became professional copyists, right? Became professional copyists, which means scribes, calligraphers, you can call them, maybe, or people who just copied them, right? Calligraphers. So, however, there was a big difference of opinion. It looks like maybe the majority in the beginning didn't agree to this, right? However, slowly, slowly, they started agreeing. Ibn Masood, the Sahabi, Al-Qama, Masruq, Shurayh, Nakha'i, Ibn Al-Musayyib, all of these are Tabi'in. They were dead against it, that you cannot charge for this. Yes, have copyists, do that as a job, but you're not, you can't charge for it. How can you charge for the Qur'an? The others, they said, we're not charging for the Qur'an, we're charging for the ink. You know, somebody's going to have to get the ink. We're charging for the time that is spent in doing this, the ink, and so on and so forth. So that's why uh, some of the more early adopters of that was Ibn Abbas, anhu, Saeed Ibn Jubair, uh, Ibn Al-Hanafiyya, Muhammad Ibn Al-Hanafiyya, who's actually the other son of Ali radiallahu anhu from, uh, from the, the brother of Hassan Hussein, but from another mother right, from Hanafiya. So he was a great scholar. So all of them, they didn't find it too dis distasteful. So that was for copyists, you know, to get somebody to write it out for you. Now, slowly, slowly what happened is that Quran, uh, copyists started writing Quran. So if you had one written for you, you might want to sell it to someone else because maybe you got two, you were gifted one or something like that, or you just needed the money. Were you allowed to sell it or not? So again, the same kind of difference of opinion. Uh, in fact, um, you had the people like Abdullah ibn Umar and his son Salim uh, ibn, ibn Abdullah. Uh, he called it a very distasteful and dreadful trade to be able to sell the Quran, right? He says, no, you, you're not allowed to sell that. Give it for free or whatever the case is. Um, but others, they said it's allowed because, again, you're not selling the Qur'an because the Qur'an doesn't belong. Because the whole discussion was that the Qur'an belongs to Allah. It's Allah's words. How can you sell those? Right? So the others said that, no, you're not selling the Qur'an. You can't sell the Qur'an. What you're selling is the paper on which it's on, the parchment it's on. That's what you're selling. You're selling the parchment, the ink, and the work. That's what you're selling, not the Qur'an itself. That's why later it became permissible. Even today we hear from some people, you can't sell the Qur'an. So then eventually uh, the opinion became that you, can, you can't sell the Qur'an, but you can buy one. Which was that if somebody is selling one, he shouldn't be selling it, but you would be allowed to buy one. But don't sell one, so to discourage selling. Nowadays, you see, uh, for personal copies, that's understandable. If you've got a personal copy, why would you want to sell it? You know, just um, give it away to someone. But the problem is that the, you know, the bookstores, the publishers... Uh, they need to make some money as well. This needs to be a business model so that they can earn a living through it. I mean, if they were producing and sending to the printers and the printers were producing, you know, Quranic copies and you'd have to just raise a lot of charity to do this and it's just not efficient. So that's why the ulama have allowed it. Um, some ulama, Sheikh Nuruddin Itar, he suggests that don't call it selling still. When you're selling, you know, anything else, you can call it selling, but when it comes to you know, trans, uh, exchanging Quran for money, call it a hadiyah. I'm giving this to you as a gift, you're giving the money to me as a gift. So, uh, just adaban, just at least it sounds like better, it's a adab, it's etiquette. That's what they said. I think that's a, that's a good opinion. That's why you will hear uh, that when 
um, what is the hadiyah for this? What is the gift? I said, it's not a hadiyah. I'm not giving you a hadiyah of something. You know, I'm selling something to you. But what it's just done adaban, right? Uh, in terms of etiquette. Some, uh, to get around this, there are some, you know, people who wanted to, you know, help the community. They established reading libraries. So it'd be a central location where they would put copies of the Quran there and people would come and read them from there, right? So this is how it is nowadays. It's so easy. Subhanallah. You know, there's uh, maybe I'll tweet this out again. But when I visited Uzbekistan, there's one jami, uh, there's this Hilal bookstore who uh, before the Qurans were just not allowed to be produced in the country, you know, for about 30 years or something. And there were just a few copies that used to be brought in from outside. It was like some kind of restriction or something. But since that's been lifted the last four or five years, these Darul Hilal produced Qurans. They've got their own printing press. And I witnessed the day. They, there's one day of the... There's one day of the month or every few months or one month, I think, where they actually give the Quran at a very cost price, like a few dollars. And you have to log this on online. And I'm not joking. The police has to be called in to manage the crowds of that large line, a huge crowd of people that come to just pick up a Quran because people don't have them the way we do. Today, I can say I've got, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe 15 copies of the Quran in my house. Alhamdulillah. Right. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. But in those places, I saw men, women and others coming in, you know, people who don't even necessarily look religious, but they're coming with such fervor to just copy. And I was able to hand a few to them. Absolute honor for me. Right. These are still in places like that that have been deprived, you know, for a while of copies of the Quran. People came, you know, so far and wide every month they do this. They wouldn't do this for another book. They might come one day if it's a famous author that comes, but that's it. Right. But here every month they're coming because, mashallah, these people are trying to help them by giving them uh, for a very small price. Things have, as I said, things have moved on. What all we're going to discuss now is a few adab. Before we finish, we're just going to few adab, uh, a few other etiquettes of the Quran. It is mustahab and recommended to kiss the Quran. I mean, there's a lot of questions about this. But because it's the revered words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is recommended to kiss it. And there's nothing wrong in doing that. The ulama have mentioned that. There's also a good idea and preferable to perfume the Quran. Now, how do you perfume the Quran? Don't get like a bottle of uh, itar and like just pour it over, then mess it up. There's ways of doing that. Alhamdulillah, uh, White Thread and Turath, we're working. Turath has worked on this beautiful, elegant uh, copy of the translation of Mufti Taqi Sab of the Quran, right, which has been published. You can get it on White Thread Press as well. However, um, White Thread and Turath together are producing a new uh, edition of the, the Asian subcontinent style 13 and 15 line Qurans, but written in the Medinan script. So it's a really beautiful script, Uthman Taha script, right, which you'll see in the Medinan, but written in the way that the Asians are generally used to reading it. Make dua, inshallah, that it's nearly completed work. Make dua that it gets completed quickly after Ramadan sometime. But inshallah, we hope, we hope, we hope to also produce a perfumed copy, inshallah. There are techniques out there to have perfumed books. So when you have them and you open them, there's a, there's, there's a, mashallah, there's a fragrance that comes out of it. We hope to be able to serve the Quran, inshallah, like that with your du'as as well. It is, uh, it, 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 the Quran should be kept in a high place. It should not be kept on the ground next to you. Sometimes there's some places in the world where they don't, for some reason, they don't consider it significant. Right. So you go, uh, you see this when you're going, sitting in Masjid al-Nabawi or Masjid al-Haram, that there's people will just leave the Mus'haf lying on the ground next to them. Right. And that's actually very, very disrespectful. This is not just any book. In fact, I probably would not even leave an Islamic book on the ground just like that. Right. I would always put it up. Right. Even though it's not necessary. I mean, never a Hadith book on the ground either, but even a general book discussing, you know, I would not leave it on the ground. It's not respect. This is where we walk, right? So um, I wouldn't do that. The Quran for sure never. And that's why many of the ulama mentioned this, that you should keep it up high. Ij'alhu yani, al uh, kursi. Ij'alhu al, you know, uh, put, it on, put, it, put it on a platform of some sort. It would be completely wrong to make it your pillow, right? Unless you think somebody's going to steal it from you at night, then you sleep next to it like that. But you can't make a pillow out of it because that's disrespect of the Quran. Right. Likewise, the ulama also, Sheikh Nuruddin Itar has mentioned in his book as well that it's makru 
right? And many of you will know this, but there's some people, they just think it's uh, just going over the top. To, ex to stretch your legs out towards the Qur'an. Right? We never do that in our homes and, you know, we never do that, alhamdulillah, you know, to, uh, to stretch the legs out to the Qur'an. This is disrespectful. And the more we respect the Qur'an, the better there is. It's also mustahab, uh, some scholars have recommended that you brush your teeth before you read the Qur'an, do a siwak, brush your teeth before you read the Qur'an. And um, what about if some... If you've got an old copy, a torn copy, a worn out copy or pieces that have come off. For example, some, uh, you know, children, they start off with the Amma, the Jews Amma. And sometimes they really mess it up and then it's all tatty and, uh, and scattered all over the place. What do you do with that? So um, some say that the best way to do it is to try to, with some kind of water or whatever, erase the ink. Now, nowadays, the ink is not going to erase with water. You might need some chemicals for that, but that's one way. And uh, then to burn them. Right after you've erased the ink and the wording, then you burn them. Okay, this is according to some opinion. The Hanafis they look at it differently. They say that you should bury them somewhere, right? And that's why in Pakistan, in some cases, they actually put them into caves. They stack them into caves, right? That are never going to be used. They say that otherwise you bury them somewhere where people aren't going to walk. That's why some cemeteries here accept Islamic literature like that, which they put into these pits in the ground. Um, they generally disregard, discourage bur uh, burning because like burning the words of Allah unless you're able to remove the lettering first. Okay? Now if you remove the lettering, you could probably even recycle the paper to be honest, right? for, use, uh, for a good use if you can't find any other way. Other suggestions are that you um, put something heavy with it and you drown them. But you, you're not going to do that in the River Thames here. Right? That's going to be very disrespectful in fact, because they eventually bring them up. Right, and there were some people who'd done that and they brought out all these Qurans and that. And that and I probably it's probably illegal as well to do that here. And the last point, the most important point, I know most people know this, but there's some people who still doubt this. The Quran should not be touched, right, without wudu. Right, without wudu. Very important. And this is based on a, a hadith. La yamasuhu, la Quran illa tahir, which is I've uh, we've mentioned it before. It's uh, transmitted by Imam Malik in his Mu'atta and others that only the pure person should touch the Quran. So there you go. That gives us some understanding of that, inshallah. In the next few days, we have, inshallah, the really interesting topic of Ijazul Quran, the inimitability of the Quran. How is this Quran a miracle? Right? So, inshallah, we're going to be covering that in some of the subsequent days. Jazakallah khair. Allah bless you all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah khair for listening. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, bless you. And if you're finding this useful, you know, um, uh, as they say, do that like button and subscribe button and forward it on to others. Jazakallah khair and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.